Okay. So last week, I listened to um, I listened to Caleb's session from last week just to see if you contradicted anything that I've said over the last several weeks, and it was fun. I I enjoy well, I like I enjoy listening to Caleb teach, but it's also just fun hearing someone else um, add a different angle to um, what we've been covering. And he gives, gives a lot of different insights that I wouldn't give because I didn't go to master's and sit under Abner Chow. And so he's giving a lot more um, just kind of uh, color, different angles, dimensions to what's going on. And I, th- I thought his uh, mention of the scapegoat throwing him off the cliff, I thought that was pretty good. Um, Chow's pretty witty and can think of the things like that pretty well. It's, it's fun to listen and sit under guys like that. Um, he did a lot of review which I'm thankful for because I don't have to do review today, and I really don't have time to do review today. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, and then he talked about the, the, how holiness is accomplished by God through the presence of God for communion with God. And it's not, a, it's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means to, uh, to having communion with God. And that's I mean, that's what we've been talking about this entire time is that um, from in the Pentateuch, the, the overall message, the overall theme, we can boil it down to God creating a way for humanity to dwell with him again. It started in the garden, and then there was just exile, exile, exile away from God. Um, Exodus, God creating a way for, um, Egypt, or for Israel to be um, with him again in his presence. He saves them out of Egypt through the water to the mountain for life with him. And... What we're going to talk about today is kind of moving from that point. But before that, I have a question on your sheet. So as it says, it says, At Sinai, God established his dwelling place among Israel through the tabernacle and provided a way to approach him and continue to live with him through the law. That's what we've been talking about the last three weeks. So based on what you know about the rest of the Pentateuch, so Numbers and Deuteronomy, did Israel understand the significance of God's dwelling presence with them? Did they get it? Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah, in Spanish, a veces, like sometimes, at times, right? They would get it and then they would not get it. But they were, like there's rebellion, there's unbelief. And we talked about in the beginning when we were structuring out the Pentateuch and we're seeing how um, Exodus and Numbers kind of parallel each other, the journey from um, Egypt to Sinai, and then Numbers, the journey from Sinai to the Promised Land. Um, there's a lot of parallels there, right? And a lot of those parallels are not good stories for Israel. They're them grumbling um, because they don't have water, they don't have food, and they're, they're grumbling and rebelling against their leaders because they don't like that Moses and Aaron have the status that they have, and, and they, just, they just don't get it, right? They just don't get it. When you look at, turn to Numbers uh, 22, <clears throat> what we're going to do today is kind of move, continue to move beyond Sinai. We're done with Leviticus, um, which took us several weeks. Um, and we, again, we didn't go in, get into the weeds in Leviticus, but we're going to move from Sinai, and then we're going to move from there to Mount Zion. And that journey really starts in, in, in Numbers. And Israel clearly doesn't, doesn't get the significance of what happened in the Leviticus um, in, at Sinai, in the, the, the cultus that God gave them um, in his dwelling presence amongst them. 
And there's an opportunity in Numbers 22 to 24 for God to actually give Israel what they deserve, to invoke a curse on Israel. Because so far, God's been very patient with them. He's provided for them. And um, there's an opportunity in, in Numbers 22 through 24. What happens in that, in that section? Well, uh, the king of Moab, he employs the, the chief prophet, um, the chief pagan prophet in Balaam, to invoke a curse on Israel. And God could have easily just allowed him to do that because that's what Israel deserved. They deserved to be cursed. But instead, God continues to show his steadfast love toward them. And instead of uh, Balaam cursing Israel, he responds by actually blessing them. He, he looks down at Israel and sees what Israel fails to see in themselves. In, uh, in, chapter, 20, um, in chapter 24, he says this, he says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. Like palm groves that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by Yahweh, like cedars beside the waters. He doesn't prophesy like someone who is um, a pagan prophet. He prophesies as someone who is inspired by the Spirit because the Spirit takes over him and speaks through him this blessing Balaam looks at Israel and sees what Israel fails to see for themselves, that because God dwells amongst them, they, they, he, there's not death amongst Israel, there's life. There's palm groves, gardens by riverside, aloes planted by Yahweh, cedars beside the waters. So Balaam sees what they fail to see. Numbers takes us, um, but, and so we see that God is continuing, continuing to be um, loving toward them, gracious toward Israel, even demonstrated in this story. He had a perfect opportunity to curse them, um, but he doesn't. Numbers takes us from Sinai to um, the promised land, not into the promised land, um, but just across the Jordan River. Deuteronomy is um, a book that basically is, is Moses's farewell address to Israel. You know, we know that he's not allowed to enter the land. He needs to die before they're going to be able to enter into the land. This is kind of his farewell address to Israel. And he leaves them with the two ultimate choices, life or death. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30. We're going to read verses 11 through 20. And at at my heading in the ESV is the choice of life and death. For this commandment that I command you today is is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today 
that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, give them. And so from there, um, Moses dies. And that's basically how Deuteronomy ends. Joshua takes us into um, the, the promised land. And so now Israel can complete its journey from Sinai to Canaan and, and really from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Let's look at um, Psalm 48, verses 1 to 3, really quickly just to see the significance of this location of Mount Zion. That really this is, this is Israel's inheritance. Look at um, Psalm 48. really just focusing on um, verses one to three here. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So Mount Zion is a, a significant location. And actually, for the rest of the Old Testament, uh, Mount Zion is, the, is, is kind of where, where Israel's history is focused on. They're either more moving towards Mount Zion, building the temple, or moving away from Mount Zion. And we're going to be talking about the significance of Mount Zion first. So first, let's talk about the significance of, of, of Mount Zion. And, and the first heading that you see there is that, um, uh, that Zion is Abraham's mountain of worship. And one of the reasons why it's significant is because that's where God's going to bring blessing to the nations. If you guys remember the context of the Abrahamic covenant, or at least the initiation of that covenant in Genesis 12, what happened just before that? What happens just before Genesis 12? Genesis 11. Well, before Genesis 11, Genesis 10. Table of Nations is Genesis 11, right? What happens right before that? No, wait, no, Genesis, no, Genesis, Genesis 10 is Table of Nations, sorry. Genesis 11 is what? The Tower of Babel, right? And what's significant about the Tower of Babel is that the nations are being scattered all over the earth and God's confusing their tongues. But God has this desire to be worshiped from all the earth that we, we talked about that before. And so, when he comes to Abraham, this is him initiating a reversal of that. So he just drove them out into exile. He's going to bring them back through, through Abraham. We see that in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Go to Genesis 12 there real quick. <clears throat> Makes a simple promise to him. He's going to give him land, seed, and blessing, as Caleb uh, talked about last week. And notice the global focus. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is initiating kind of a reversal of Babel through Genesis 12. Now, in Genesis 22... Um, without looking, what happens? It's a very significant event in Israel's history. What happens in Genesis 22? 
Say it louder. Golden calf, no, Genesis 22. That's the sacrifice of Isaac, right? So go to Genesis 22. And we're not going to necessarily walk through this um, in depth, but we're going to talk over this a little bit. <clears throat> What's happening at, in Genesis 22, and most um, scholars would say that Genesis 22 forms kind of the basis, the, the theological basis for the rest of the Levitical sacrifices. That there's a picture in Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 22, of this substitutionary atonement. Abraham is, is asked to bring up his, his son, his only son, on whom all, the, all of the, the blessings and the promises of Genesis 12 and 15 and, 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 and the covenant that God makes with Abraham hangs on this one son. And he asks him to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, an ascension offering is what we've been calling it, right? And Abraham exemplifies this amazing faith, knowing that God is going to keep his promise. And, and Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God would even raise Isaac from the dead if that's what he needed to do in order to keep his promise. So Abraham goes to the mountain. What's the name of this mountain? Mount Moriah. Abraham goes to Mount Moriah in 2 Kings um, 3 would, would, would indicate, we're going to get there, or 2 Chronicles 3, that Mount Moriah becomes Mount Zion, and he offers his son, and God substitutes a ram for his son, and that place is called the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. So there's a theological connection between Abraham's mountain, uh, Mount Moriah, and uh, Mount Zion that, that, that um, Old Testament authors make a little bit more in the future. So there's a, there's a global focus on this covenant with, made with um, Abraham. The theological background for um, the Levitical sacrificial system is found on Mount Moriah as well. But then what we see when we talk about the temple, when it's made in, when it's, when it's built in uh, later on in Scripture, that there's a global focus to the temple as well. That um, the temple was going to be a place where Israel would draw in the nations, that the nations would come to Israel to be drawn to the temple. That even as they're, as they're creating or as they're building the temple, um, they employ the nations the local residents uh, from other nations would come in and help build the temple, that even the king of Tyre was involved in building the temple and providing uh, resources for it. There's a global focus to this temple, even though it was centered in Jerusalem and centered on the people of Israel. And so really we see Mount Zion and this connection with Abraham and his mountain. There's a, there's a lot of strong theological connection there. And so you can see even in the journey to Mount Zion, <clears throat> Um, we see a similar picture there. Remember that um, if we talk about exile, we talk about going into the wilderness, it's like talking about going into Sheol. And so you see out of Sheol, we have Abraham coming up with his covenant, going to Mount Moriah. Through the Jordan River, Israel travels through the water to the Mount, Mount Zion, where David then um, proposes building this, um, this temple for God. Let's keep moving. God chooses to make his home, his permanent home, 
in Mount Zion. Now, God had already established his dwelling amongst Israel in the tabernacle. Was that a permanent dwelling? That was a tent. It traveled with Israel, right? But God wants to make a permanent um, dwelling amongst Israel, and he wants to make it at Mount Zion. Let's go to Psalm 132 and just kind of see some of these themes come out a little bit. I'll make sure I keep track of my time here. <clears throat> Whatever we don't cover today, we're going to cover next week. So, Psalm 132, verses 13 to 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Go to 46, Psalm 46. Verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And um, sorry, this is verse, uh, verse 4. gives a little more context for this. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is talking about Zion. Look at Psalm 78. One more um, psalm. Just talk about, as we look at the significance of Sinai for God and his choosing of it. Psalm, uh, psalm 78, verse 68. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. The Psalms, the Psalms have a lot to say about Mount Zion. God chose Zion. He loves Zion. He builds his house in Zion. He dwells in Zion. <clears throat> and if we add to these statements, you know, what God says in Deuteronomy, that he wants to, he wants to dwell permanently on, in one location, he's telling them to, to go to one particular location in Deuteronomy 12. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12 real quick. God has a desire to, be, to go to one location, be worshipped from this particular location. And Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 15, really helps drive that point home. I don't want to get bogged down too much here, but you notice some of the language. Uh, look at uh, just verse, the first few verses in uh, chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess, the promised land, all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. Listen to how, they, how he talks about the places where they worshiped. On the high mountains, on the hills, and every green and under every green tree. We've been talking about how mountains represent the place where God wants to be worshipped and represents God's dwelling place, right? It's interesting how even the nations they would would put their high their high places, their mountains, where where they put their shrines and their temples and things like that as well. Um, we don't need to go in more depth. It's just an interesting point there. Um, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. And that's where? Ultimately, it's moving towards 
Zion. So God has chosen this particular place to be worshipped, and he wants to be worshipped there permanently. 1 Kings 8, um, 56, um, in, in, in Solomon's declaration, he says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has spoken. Not one word has failed of all his good word, which he spoke by the hand of Moses, his servant. That they've actually made it to this place in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, and now God is going to be worshipped here. So although the tabernacle was a mountain of the Lord, um, where God would dwell with his people, it was only temporary. It was only temporary. Why else is Mount Zion significant? Uh, Mount Zion is the city of David. It's, uh, Mount Zion and David are inextricably linked through the Davidic covenant. Through the Davidic covenant. Let's go to, um, let's look at, I'm going to skip some of these notes here. Let's look at 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. David has this desire to build for God a house, right? He wants to build God a temple. <clears throat> Without getting bogged down in the text, um, for those of you that are familiar, does God say, yeah, sure, build me a house right away? He says, no. You want to build for me a house, What's God say, though? He said, I'm going to do what? I'm going to build for you a house. And then he says that your seed is going to be the one to build a house for me. There's some interesting things that go on in, in, in Hebrew. I'm not going to get too far into it just because I'm, not, I'm deaf. Like, Caleb's not a Hebrew scholar. He's in, like, what year of Hebrew are you in? He's in third year Hebrew. Um, I'm in negative one because I forgot all my Hebrew from seminary. And um, so I'm definitely not a Hebrew scholar, but, um, but I, can, I can look at it and I can sometimes read some things. And, uh, but there's some interesting wordplay that can happen in other languages and, and in Hebrew specifically here. Um, the words for house, the word for house and the word for household are the same word. Um, the word for stone and son and house and build, all these words that are used in this passage are all playing on similar sounds. It's like rappers using similar sounds to put string some hood poetry together, right? Some of you guys know I used to like, well, I still like hip-hop, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to string it in sometimes in my teaching, as much as Mark and Jeremy probably don't like it. <clears throat> Actually, Jeremy does like it, so. <laughs> but, but here, what God is talking about, or what God tells uh, uh, David, this wordplay is significant because uh, David says, I'm gonna, I want to build you a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house. And your seed, your offspring, they're going to build me a house. These words um, can also be interchangeable, the, the, the way that, the, the, way that the, the language is being used here. What God is saying here is that, David, you're not going to build for me a house. I'm going to build for you a household. People, made with people, the offspring. And your offspring is going to build for me a house. Now, we could think near, like really close to this text, what happens next? Well, Solomon comes later. Solomon builds for him the temple. There's a, there's a physical house there. But how, does the, how do the scriptures show that this, this promise is fulfilled? Look at First Peter. 
Let's go to 1 Peter. We're going to do more in the New Testament next week, but 1 Peter chapter 2. With that covenant uh, fresh in our minds, listen to the language here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual what? House. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. But the covenant made with David is what um, provides the grounds um, or provides the the line uh, through which the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the offspring. He's going to create or make for God a house, and he's going to build it up with not dead stones, but with living stones, right? And that's how the God's people are talked about. There's a lot of language used there that's familiar between Israel and the church. God's people there, that, that, this is the household that this covenant is pointing towards. So Zion, um, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we have too much time to develop this, but there's a strong link between Zion and David. If you look through the Psalms, you're going to see that strong link between the two. Lastly, um, Zion is the Eden of Israel's end. We talked about how Israel starts in the, or how uh, the Bible starts in the Garden of Eden, and then they move from, humanity moves from the Garden of Eden, they're exiled further and further away from God's, um, God's home, God's house. God creates a way for them to enter back into his presence through the mountain of Sinai and then through the tabernacle, which is the mountain of God. And we've been talking about who shall ascend, who shall ascend. Well, in the Levitical Levitical priesthood, the high priest shall ascend the mountain of the Lord to meet with God face to face to atone for Israel's sins. And the tabernacle, we talked about how there's a lot of connection between the tabernacle and Eden. And if the tabernacle is connected with Eden theologically and thematically and, and the way it's decorated and all these things, then the temple at Mount Zion also is representative of Eden as well. Mount Zion becomes this kind of new Eden. And we talk about, and, and Revelation is going to pick up on this theme. We're going to develop this more in the future as well. But, but Mount Zion is identified with motifs that are reminiscent of the garden, just as the tabernacle was uh, before. So Mount Zion has become the new Eden. Now, Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to talk just briefly about exile and restoration. There's this idea that you're either moving towards the mountain or you're moving away from the mountain. We've been talking about how God is, uh, that how history, human history has shown us moving away from God's mountain in the garden, but God makes a way for us to go back up the mountain through the tabernacle and through Mount Zion. And so here are some pictures here with some other words that are also um, used to describe this movement away from God's presence, away from God's mountain. Um, driving out, scattering, um, th- that kind of language. But then other language um, that is talking about, that, that is used to refer to the ascension up that mountain. God is going to plant them. He's going to shepherd them. He's going to bring them. He's going to gather them 
um, to his holy place. Okay, we're going to talk more about that next week. Um, and we're going to talk more about this, the chart down at the bottom that kind of gives us a little bit of um, review of what we've covered and then where we're going. Um, so next week, we're going to we're going to answer some of the questions that were left unanswered that I wrote down um, previously at the beginning. And we're going to tie in this, what we've been covering in Leviticus with the New Testament, some New, New Testament implications, New Testament theology that we get by understanding Leviticus better. So that's what we have today. Really quick, um, we're going to have to tie up loose, loose ends next week.